You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. As I try to say as often as I can, just a continued reminder that, that we are the church. Uh, if we haven't met yet, uh, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church, the guy who uh, most Sundays gets to, to do the preaching around these parts this morning in continuation of our journey through the book of Galatians, which we jumped into back at the beginning of the fall. This is a series that's gonna carry us all the way up to the season of Advent, which is only three weeks away, crazy as it may seem. Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we've talked about for months now, really, uh, inviting us into a deeper understanding and appreciation of the truth, the beauty, and the hope of the gospel, that we might find life in the sweetness of freedom, as opposed to the, the bondages that uh, might otherwise invite us in, the, the shackles that we don't have to live in because we have a freedom that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. And so with that, because we have a lot of ground to cover, I'm gonna go ahead and invite us to open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter five. We'll be in verses 16 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles. Use it during our time together. If you don't own a Bible, please take that copy of the scriptures with you. We would be more than enthusiastic and excited to know that you're exploring uh, the Bible on your own time outside of gatherings like these. As you're turning there, uh, just as a framing up of, of how we're gonna tackle this this morning. So there, there's an entire sermon series in the archives. If you go to our website, a series entitled The Virtues, where we walk through week by week the, the fruit of the spirit, that list, beginning with love in week one and then joy in, in the following week and then peace and so forth and so on. And so uh, we're not gonna get down into the deep weeds of detail on uh, particular words and phrases this morning. Uh, the, the goal, because we're working through a book of the Bible as opposed to a topical sermon series, is, is to try to continue to track with Paul's train of thought, his logic, his argumentation, and to see how he uses certain word pictures and metaphors to try to make sense of what he's been arguing for several chapters now. And so that's how we're gonna, gonna go after it this morning. And so if you wanna do a deeper, deeper uh, dive on love, joy, peace, patience, etc., you can go find that sermon series in the archives and, and go a bit deeper. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll jump in to the Bible this morning. Heavenly Father, praise you and thank you for your great love, your mercy, your kindness, that you would send your son into the slums of this fallen, broken, sinful world, that he might live the life that none of us could live, that he might bear the curse that was ours to bear, that he might rise from the grave three days later, recognition that the payment for sin was accepted in full. For we who had looked to Jesus by faith, trusting in him for the salvation that can only be found in him, our great high priest who even now is accessible to us at the right hand of the Father, 
that we can approach the throne of mercy and grace boldly for grace and help in time of need. This one and same Jesus who has sent his spirit, poured out his spirit upon his people. The spirit who takes up residency within us as believers. Praise you for where this story is headed, that someday this Jesus will return to set all things right, ushering his people into the greatest happily ever after the world has ever known. The death blow, it's been delivered to the dragon. He will breathe his last someday, as will our very flesh. And so I pray that we would be encouraged as we sit with Galatians 5 in front of us this morning, that that we would walk away trusting that you're doing a great work in us as we abide in the vine and as we follow the leading and prompting and guidance of the spirit who indwells us. Speaking of the spirit, Holy Spirit, would you move in power as we sit with your inspired word before us? Would you give me a feeling sense of the things I preach as much as anybody in this space this morning? And I pray that we would walk away transformed, changed, fortified, encouraged, whatever you have for us, and that it would be for your glory and your glory alone, and that the joy and good would be ours. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So at this point in in Paul's uh, letter to the churches of Galatia, Paul's just laid out his treaties on Christian freedom, going back to the beginning of chapter 5 having defended his apostolic authority for several chapters there along with his gospel message, followed by a rebuke of the Galatians for lending their itching ears to the the siren song of false teachers, beckoning them they were toward a pit of enslavement. In fact, nothing less than the pit of spiritual death, which Paul has made an effort for quite a few chapters here to expose and contrast this false teaching with the true gospel through some of the most complex argumentation in all of his New Testament writings. If you've been around the past few weeks, you've seen some of that. Paul understanding what's at stake to be no less than the fight for true freedom. The Galatian believers having been bought out of the marketplace of sin by Jesus' precious blood, more than that, granted the rights, the privileges, the blessings of sons and heirs. Having been freed from the enslaving power of idols, they were being tempted to trade one form of enslavement for another. In their case, enslavement to the law of Moses. As the false teachers in Galatia, they were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. And Paul says, do that and you submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stepping out of the shackles of sin only to step into the the new yoke of legalism can only lead to pride or despair, arrogance or hopelessness, depending on how we're performing. Paul's plea to the Galatians that they not trade shackles for shackles, that they continue the Christian life the way they began it, not in cross-diminishing, spirit-abandoning self-reliance, but in cross-clinging, spirit-reliant faith. Faith that proves itself genuine, Paul says, in the bearing of the fruit of love. The kind of love that, that could never flow from the pride or insecurity that comes with a life of self-wrought religious performance. Right? Tempting are those idols that, that enslave approval, power, comfort, control, to name a few. Tempting, too, is the enslaving siren song that would beckon each and every one of us to live in the pursuit of God's acceptance rather than from the position of acceptance that's already ours in Jesus Christ. 
that yes, many of us would say that, that in Christ we've been set free, but the good news is, and this is what Paul's fighting for, is that we can actually live in that freedom. We can experience that freedom. We can rest in that freedom in real time, in real relationships with real people. Freedom from the idols of our day, freedom from the treadmill of self-wrought religious performance. Such freedom giving way to true love as it's Jesus who frees us from the shackles that would otherwise bind us, that with our unbound hands, we might cling to him and serve one another in love. Picking up where we left off last week, verse 16 of chapter five, Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There's a war taking place within every believer. War between the spirit and the flesh. The flesh, meaning not simply the the physical nature of our human bodies, but the mind, the emotions, the will out of step with the spirit of God. Simply put, the, the sinful nature. In the words of one pastor and scholar, quote, the, the sin desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God desiring aspect. That's what Paul's after here. He'll go on to make plain in his listing of the works of the flesh, many of which have less to do with our actions and more to do with the, the motivations and intentions of the heart not unlike the focus of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, you shall not murder, but I say if you're angry with your brother. John Piper defines it this way. He says, the flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness but loathes the idea of satisfying it by faith. Instead, the flesh prefers to use the legalistic or licentious resources in its own power to fill the emptiness. Right? At times, the, the flesh will lead us down the road of legalism, of cross-abandoning, uh, spirit-abandoning, self-reliant religiosity, as was the danger for those in the Galatian churches. At, at other times, the flesh will, will lead us down the road of licentiousness as we fill the emptiness with uh, things that can never fully and finally satisfy us, including not only the, the desire for and pursuit of sinful things, but but two, the desire for and pursuit of good things that we elevate to a place of supremacy. Good things made ultimate things so that they become God things, so to speak. The desires of the flesh, which Paul says are against the spirit. Reciprocally, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The spirit meaning the Holy Spirit himself who who makes us alive in Christ and takes up residency within us. The flesh and the spirit, verse 17, Paul says, opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. On the one hand, the flesh keeps us from doing what we wanna do as it pertains to the desire to live in perfect conformity to Christ. So that at times we even find ourselves, Romans 7, uh, doing the very thing we hate. On the other hand, the spirit keeps us from doing what we wanna do as it pertains to the desire to fill the emptiness, the void with things that cannot fill it so that our lives are in fact lived in progressive sanctification. We're not left stagnant where we are. We're dynamic characters in this redemptive story. 
a progressive sanctification that will someday give way to God's great work of glorification and making us once and for all perfectly holy. Paul exhorting believers to to walk by the spirit who guides and empowers those whom he indwells and leads us down the path of true freedom and joy as we yield to him in glad submission. He says in verse 18, but, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Right, as Paul has uh, expressed throughout this letter, to be under the law is to be under a curse. Chapter three, verse 10, imprisoned under sin. Chapter three, verse 22, under a guardian. Chapter three, verse 25, enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. Chapter four, verse three. Not so with those who are led by the Spirit. The Spirit not only uh, giving us new desires, but the, the wonder-working power to walk in God-glorifying Christ-likeness. What Paul describes as the, through the language and imagery of, of the fruit of the Spirit in contrast with the works of the flesh. Both of which he goes on to list out in in a sort of non-exhaustive fashion, one of the, the many biblical examples of a laying out and listing of various vices and virtues. Paul says in, in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such thing will, things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A few things to, to note in uh, Paul's laying out of the, the works of the flesh. For one, uh, notice again that, that we're not just talking about sinful actions. As Paul includes things having to do with the mind, the emotions, the will of a person. Our actions, oftentimes a, a check engine light inviting us to look under the hood, so to speak. Notice too that uh, Paul includes as works of the flesh things that are uh, characteristic of both irreligious and religious people. Again, the flesh at times preferring to fill the emptiness with legalism, as was the case for the Galatian believers, which was leading to verse 20, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions within the body. Again, at times the flesh preferring to, to fill the emptiness with legalism, at other times with licentiousness, which Paul lists here is in categories of sexuality, of idolatry, of overindulgence. As Paul's argued throughout his letter to the churches of Galatia, it's, it's enslavement either way, whether to the shackles of paganism or the shackles of legalism and the works of the flesh that, that either of the two may produce. Notice, too, that, that Paul includes not only works of the flesh that affect us as individuals, but, too, those that impact our relationships with those around us, meaning that there's a we at stake as it pertains to our yielding to the Spirit in glad submission. Our sins don't just affect us, but people around us. Lastly, notice Paul's inclusion of the sobering phrase, and things like these, verse 21. It's a junk drawer phrase, declaring this list to be anything but exhaustive. Lest we make such a list like this, the new law of Moses and adhere to a new Galatian heresy and pulling out a pen and checking off boxes in the spirit of a modern day scribe or Pharisee. 
Paul offering up the, the sober warning that, that those who do such things, such works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which is not to say that those who stumble, even at times fall, will not inherit the kingdom. The word translated do in verse 21 is from the Greek word proso, which means a regular practice or routine or habit. So that what Paul's describing here is, is the absence of that internal war between the, the spirit and the flesh, which is a sign that the spirit in fact indwells us and that we belong to Jesus. Such a listing of, of the works of the flesh meant to call the, the Galatian believers back to where they began, self-abandoning, self-denying, cross-clinging, spirit-reliant faith in God. Paul goes on in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The language and imagery of, of fruit communicating a few things. One, that, that spiritual growth is oftentimes gradual, as gradual and, and unnoticeable at times as the growth of a grape on a vine. Two such imagery communicating something of a, of a root system below, reminding us that this fruit is not something that we can produce ourselves, which would be akin to stapling a fig to a fig tree. Right, such a fig, we, we all know, would die over time, disconnected from the nutrients of the root system itself. So it is that apart from Christ, the true vine, we cannot bear fruit, John 15, only through abiding in Jesus. The root of spirit-reliant, Christ-abiding faith, uh, breaking forth through the dirt, so to speak, revealing itself in fruitful ways that are visible to us and those around us. Again, true and lasting change running deeper than, than just visible words and, and actions down to the motivations and intentions of our hearts. The singular language of fruit, too, communicating something of significance is notice that the fruit of the Spirit, singular, is not like the gifts of the Spirit, plural. That the gifts of the Spirit are apportioned such that we all receive different gifts as God wills. Not so with the fruit of the Spirit, as if the Spirit gives some believers patience and others self-control, some joy and others gentleness. Now, there's, some, there's something holistic about these, these virtues which combined exhibit the beauty of Christ-likeness. It's not to say that, that each of them is as strong in us as the others, but simply that the Holy Spirit is conforming us in all of these things into the image of Jesus. In the words of one pastor and writer, these virtues are not nine different gems, but nine different facets of the same dazzling jewel. The fruit of the Spirit, virtues of Christ's likeness. Against such things, Paul says, there is no law. Meaning that, that the law could never produce such fruitfulness as it would simply, again, be a stapled on fig. Only the spirit who produces fruit that the law cannot produce. But lest we think that we don't have a part to play, Paul goes on to say in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul here declaring that, that yes, it's the spirit who produces fruit in our lives, but that doesn't mean it's a passive experience for us. Having crucified the flesh we have, Paul says, Paul says, 
The first time being at our conversion when by faith we were united to Christ in his death. And yet as, as any of us who's honest would, would affirm, the sinful nature wants to climb back down from that cross, daily beckoning us to remove the nails, so to speak, and help it out. As Jesus declared, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That the war has already been won. The outcome determined through the victory of Jesus. Make no mistake about that. But the Christian life is no peacetime endeavor. That Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, verse 13, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's the, it's the language of mortification, of putting our flesh to death by the power of the spirit. Which as many of us know, can be both painful and gradual. As anyone who's ever been crucified would attest. There was, no, there was no existing word to describe the pain of crucifixion in Jesus's day, in Paul's day. And so a word was created. In the English translation, the word excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. A reminder that putting the flesh to death can be incredibly painful at times. And not just painful, but, but gradual. As oftentimes victims would hang on the cross for days before breathing their last breath. A reminder that through this language and imagery that the crucifying of the flesh comes with few shortcuts. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. If you could line graph it, it'd be messy. But here's the encouraging news. Yes, crucifixion is both painful and gradual, but it's also final. Right? When a criminal was crucified, the, the surrounding guards made sure that, that the victim was dead. And in fact, if the guard failed to do so, that guard would be killed. Same is true of the war against the flesh, Paul says, in that God will ensure that the sinful nature breathes its last breath in the end. Praise God. The spirit will win, the flesh will lose. Paul goes on in verse 25 to give the other side of this coin of sanctification. If the one side is mortification, the killing of our flesh, the other side would be what theologians refer to as vivification. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Then on the one hand, we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, the mortification of the flesh. On the other hand, we live by the Spirit. What theologians of old have commonly referred to as vivification, that word meaning to breathe life into or to animate. First example of which we, we see in the creation story itself. Genesis chapter two, verse seven, we're told that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature animated by the breath of God. That sanctification involves putting the sinful nature to death but it too involves keeping in step with the spirit who breathes life into the new self, the new creation that we are. The famous Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana once wrote, 
Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Right, Paul's language and imagery here harkens back to the, the story of the Exodus, which we've seen before in this book of the Bible, that we might learn from the wilderness wandering temptations and even failures of, of Israel, who too, though, though maybe surprising to some, were led by the Spirit as they journeyed through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The Holy Spirit didn't show up uh, in Acts chapter one and two for the first time. As the prophet Isaiah writes, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 11 through 14, he says, where is he who brought them, that is Israel, up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? There it is. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. He goes on to say, like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord, there he is again, gave them rest. So you, O Lord, led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And then there are the words of the prophet Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter nine says, even when they had made, that is Israel, for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit, there he is again, to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Israel was, was led by the spirit and walked in the spirit and was sustained by the manna from heaven and the water that God provided. The temptation for Israel being to return to the, the bondage of Egypt, a temptation that was all too real for them, right? Just as the temptation for the Galatians was to turn to the bondage of relying upon the law of Moses, though they had been set free in Christ. The greater Moses, Jesus, having come to establish a greater exodus and bringing freedom from the greater shackles of Satan, sin, and death. Right, so we too face the, uh, the daily temptation to turn to the enslaving idols of our day. Perhaps the treadmill of self-wrought religious performance. And yet, what I think Paul would want us to hear this morning as we camp out in Galatians 5 is, like Israel in the wilderness, we have everything we need. As we journey through our own wilderness on our way to the eternal land of promise, the celestial city of God. We have Christ to sustain us, the true bread who came down from heaven. We have the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and empower us, the living water whom Jesus gives to those who belong to him. The battle is, is intense, but take heart. Be encouraged this morning. Believer, you belong to Jesus. You possess the life-breathing, animating spirit so abide in the one to whom you belong. Walk in the guidance of the power of the one who indwells you. 
and you will indeed bear the fruit of Christ-likeness to the praise of God's glorious grace. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.